My name is James Metzger. I'm the lead pastor at Renaissance Bible Church, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning into our podcast. At Ren, we really believe that God's Word is living and active, that God still uses it to form and shape and change lives uh, for all of eternity. And so our prayer uh, for you is that God might use uh, these words to point you and others to Jesus. May God bless you in your journey. Well, I'm thrilled to be here to be able to share the word today. It's funny because the passage that I studied was the one that obviously James is in order of doing. And when you're teaching a passage, you do like get into it and mull over it. So I read it a long time ago and then like all week been studying it. And it's funny to me that it actually literally is exactly, in other words, I am today going to be practicing standing here before you exactly what this passage is talking about. And I don't know why, but for some reason that has been really at the same time heavy and at the same time exciting. But it to me, it added a weight to what we're going to be talking about today personally. And so prayerfully, the Lord will speak to your heart as well through something that he says today in his word. Have you ever had in your life a crisis of faith? Think about it. Think about your own crisis of faith. A moment in your life when you were like, whoa, it, it it could be like, for some people, maybe they're more intellectually minded. And so a crisis of faith might come in the form of something intellectual. You know, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that? I know the Bible says this, but is that really what it means? Or crisis of faith. Maybe it in your life was literally something that happened to you, like uncontrollable happened to you that caused you to have a crisis of faith. Maybe something bad or an event or a car crash, whatever it is that caused you to have some form of a uh, crisis of faith where you were really torn. You're, you're questioning, you know, um, I'll tell you one that I had was, uh, I forget the year, but, uh, we found out in my family that my mom had cancer, but it was a really rare form of cancer that was only in her skin system. Here's the name, crazy name, but it was called mycosis fungoids and it would not kill her. So that was good news on that side of it. The only threat from that type of cancer, as with any kind of cancer, is, the, is that it could spread. So that was the caution, was that if it did spread, then obviously that's something that might could uh, be uh, terminal. But her particular type of cancer was not. So they said we can treat it, and, da, da, da. and then uh, after about a year or two of different kinds of treatments and things like that, um, they said that they were having great success at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, Texas, to treat this type of cancer with a bone marrow transplant. 
So many of the patients that had had this type of cancer who got a bone marrow transplant, that cured that type of cancer or went into remission. So they were having great success with that. So my parents prayed about it, talked about it, prayed about it, thought about it, looked at the insurance and all that kind of stuff and decided, you know what, maybe we'll look into doing that. So long story short, they went to Houston and were on track to do the bone marrow transplant. They actually even got a condo there so that my dad could stay and be with her the whole time and all of that. So they went like a month ahead of time and whatever. And I was working at a church in Florida at the time, and my parents called one day and said, hey, we've, we've thought about this, and we want all the kids to come and see Houston and just be with us before the bone marrow transplant. So my parents flew, me and my two sisters, just us, not our families, but just us as a family unit, to Houston to spend time with my parents. And we had a blast. Like, we went out to eat, and it was just like us back on vacation when we were in high school or something, but we were all adults with kids. So we did that and got to spend, like, five days with her doing that. So then I flew back to the home, went to the, back to the church in Florida. Da, da, da. A couple months later, about a month later, sorry, my dad called and said, hey, the bone marrow transplant is tomorrow, so let's all be praying. So we were all praying and everything. And um, then about three days later, after the bone marrow transplant, my dad called and said, hey, it's not going great because um, her blood counts, blah, 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 and all the different things that happen. And lo and behold, she had gotten an infection because when they do a bone marrow transplant, they take you down to like zero in your ability to fight off infection. So she got an infection. So we thought, oh, we better, we better pray. And so we were starting to pray. And like, Lord, I know you can handle this bone marrow transplant. It's just an infection. And da, da, da. So that'll go away. And of course, they've got antibiotics and whatever they do. And it's going to be fine. So they did that. And so that's how I'm kind of praying and believing. I was still at work. And then my dad calls again and says, I think you need to come to Houston. And I was like, I thought it was just an infection. Well, no, her organs are starting to shut down. So we flew back to Houston and spent some time. And I stayed about two days with my mom in the hospital, really hospital, really ill. And then, but, but I'm like, I mean, we've got work and family back home and all of that. And so finally my dad said, I, I think y'all should just go back and I'll just keep you posted. So I got back on a plane, flew back to Charlotte. I mean, I was torn, hated to leave. Flew back to Charlotte. Some friends of mine, two buddies that are still great friends today, picked me up at the airport, took me to lunch. One of the guys had a condo in downtown Charlotte, so we went back there, and we were going to spend the night. And then we thought, hey, you know what? Because I was still, like, torn up, you know. And he said, hey, why don't we go eat at South Park, and we'll just hang out there for a little bit. So we went to South Park Mall, kind of walked around. We ate dinner. But I'm feeling this weight this whole day. And then after dinner, we were walking to the car, and I was like, y'all, can we, can we just go pray? And they were like, yeah, man, let's do it. And I'm like, hey, here's some benches right here up on Fairview Road. They had some benches that had just redone the sidewalks. It was a beautiful little spot. It was about 10 at night, and we sat on those benches, and this was my crisis of faith. I prayed like I've never prayed before. Because here in this moment, in my mind, my mom, my very own mom, who was 62 years old, very young, especially as I get older, I'm realizing just how young, 62 years old, and her life is literally hanging in the balance in the hospital in Houston, and I'm a thousand miles away, however far it is. And I prayed my guts out. We prayed for about an hour. I mean, I was like broken, just crying out to God. I'm like, it's now or never. 
I mean, we're hanging in the balance here. It is now or never. Either God is going to step in and do something right here and heal her and do an amazing work and and amaze the doctors and the nurses, and she's going to recover, and it's going to be unbelievable because he's not done with her, and I'm praying this out and just by faith believing this and fully understanding in my mind in that moment that God's going to heal her. So I went to bed that night at my friend's condo, and I had left my phone with Charity, I think, because we only had one cell phone back then or something. Yeah, she was in Ohio or singing at a wedding or something. And I, so my friend gave me his phone, and we set it beside where I was sleeping, and I had told my dad, this is the number to call. So uh, I kept checking it. And look, like I didn't sleep at all, but every hour I'd check it or whatever. And finally, my friend Lenny said, Tim, I think I heard the phone. And I looked up, and sure enough, it was ringing still. And I got it and said, hello. And it was my sister and said, Tim, it's over. And in that moment, I was like, what do you mean it's over? Lord, we prayed at South Park on the bench for my mom to be healed. We had this conversation. I mean, I was struck in a crisis of faith. I wasn't going to tell you the whole ending, but real quick, God gave me a tremendous picture of what that culmination of that faith really was in John 10, 9 and 10, when he says, I've come to give life and give it to the full. The devil comes to kill, kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come to give life and give it to the full. And I remembered my mom in the hospital suffering with cancer, suffering with all of these things. And I thought to myself, you know what? The ultimate healing is when God takes us to be with him. So in those moments, I thought, how selfish of me to wish my mom back here when she is sitting at the feet of Jesus worshiping. So crisis of faith. We're going to talk about that today as we look at this passage. The passage is Mark 9, chapter, sorry, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And here is what they say. Remember, uh, if you were here last week, James talked about the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes with the three disciples and they're standing at the top and Peter's like, whoa, it's good that we're here. And Jesus literally is transfigured into being the son of God right before their very eyes. They're just walking down from the mountain when this story begins. And it says in verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. They were overwhelmed. I love that right there. They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who possessed, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And later in the text, we see that he's also deaf from the spirit. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him 
And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or to water to try to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet And he stood up after Jesus had gone indoors. His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Notice a few things right off the top, and then we're going to get into some points that we can kind of glean from this. But right off the top, it's interesting to note that there's a clear contrast between the transfiguration that had just occurred and then they walk off the mountain and isn't this just like the earth that we live on that is fallen there is sin in the world and as you and I open up our we used to open our newspapers as we open up news apps or see the news on tv or whatever we can see the condition that the world is currently in but isn't it just like this, that they're walking off the mountain of transfiguration where Peter said, man, we need to build three tents up here so we can all just stay. It is so good that we are here. Let's live in this mountaintop experience. But they're walking back down here. And the contrast is between the desperate human condition and the disciples' failure up against the glory of the transfiguration. It's the mountaintop versus the valley, the transfiguration versus the uh, arguing and spiritual warfare that was taking place down in this valley that they had just come across. They were arguing, and interestingly, Jesus says, hey, what are y'all arguing about? There was a picture by Raphael, the artist, and he captures that scene right there. That is what we just talked about. That is the transfiguration on top. And when they walk back down the mountain, the arguing at the bottom. 500 years ago, that was painted. That's that's the world we live in. The Bible, we're going to look at it later, but in Ephesians 6 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world, against those forces in the heavenly realm. So we're going to see what that's like in just a little bit. But I thought that was a cool picture that Raphael, 500 years ago, painted that depicted this scene exactly of walking from the Mount of Transfiguration down into the valley. And then verse 15 says um, that when Jesus came walking up, I love this. Look right there in verse 15. Um, As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. One of the commentators that I read said this. 
It was due to the unexpected yet opportune presence of Jesus in their midst. Have you ever been somewhere where when someone walks into the room, it's like, oh, when I was at Liberty in my junior year, I helped with graduation. And that year for graduation, George Bush Sr. was coming to speak. And a friend of mine worked for the school and called me and said, Tim, they need help. They need volunteers. Do you want to help volunteer to help, you know, behind the scenes make this event happen? I was like, sure. So we went and met with the people and they said, hey, we want you to help with the White House advance team work out the details of the White House staff coming to the school for the graduation. So I was like, oh, that sounds kind of fun. All right. So one of my jobs was to organize the motorcade. So I got to call all the dealerships in the area, mostly Cadillac or Lincoln or whatever at the time, to see if we could borrow cars for the motorcade. So I got to work that out, and that was really cool. And then they said, hey, Tim, we also want you to be a White House staff escort. So when the helicopter Marine 2 lands on the soccer field, we need you to escort John Sununu into a room where George Bush is going to end up standing and all of the dignitaries are going to be there for pictures and things like that. So I was like, man, that sounds really cool. So long story short, I was standing out on the field and I'm looking at my timesheet and literally to the second the helicopter lands on the field, a door opens, Johnson Inu gets in a limousine that I didn't know about and then drives right past me down to the place where they're going to get out and then go in where George Bush was going to end up. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm not really escorting him. I'm just kind of running behind him. So I ran down to that room and stood there, and I had a little security pin and all that kind of jazz. But I remember standing there, and everyone's talking in the room. Everybody's kind of talking or whatever, and all of a sudden – there was like a hush and all eyes turned to the edge of the room and, and people started clamoring down that side of the way because the president of the United States walked through those doors right over there into that room. And that's what the Bible says that happens here. They all turn and we're in awe. And I love what he says about that. It was an unexpected yet opportune moment to see Jesus. And that's what this boy's father picks up on. So when we keep reading in that, we see what happens. We're going to talk about it. What are some things from this story that you and I can take home today? Here's one. There's five or six, but here's the first one. Jesus, this is so simple. Jesus is awesome and wonderful. Now, I hit the uh, clear slide thing. Sorry, I put that on there wrong. Okay. Jesus is awesome and wonderful. But re- I said that as a joke a little bit, but I wanted to pick apart the, the literal words because what we have here is what these people were experiencing when it says in the text that they were filled with wonder. At when, when they saw Jesus, they were in awe. So that's really what I wanted to point out is that Jesus is awesome. He's worthy of our awe. Picture that word. And the same is true of wonder. He is filled with wonder. When you and I are on earth, trapped in our earthly bodies, and we see the presence of Jesus like Peter did in the transfiguration, understanding who Jesus really is, we are filled with wonder at what he can do and is doing and just for who he is. 
And that's something that we really need to understand. And so the point that I want to make from that, when I read this passage and thought that through, I was thinking, man, if Jesus is so awesome and wonderful, what am I doing? I need to let him into my life. Let him into my circumstances. He is powerful. He does miracles. He changes things. And when I hold him back or don't recognize how awesome or wonderful he is, I'm really focusing on my awesomeness and how wonderful I am and taking my eyes off of him and looking at me. So my my challenge for you today, because it's the challenge for me today, is to let him in. Let him into your life and circumstances. And we're going to talk about that a bunch more today, but that's just the the starting point. Because you know what? If Jesus, like George Bush, I pointed over here when Bush walked into that door and everybody clamored. If Jesus Christ literally walked through that door right now, we would recognize that. And we would be over there in a split second. They'd be like, I don't know who this guy is, but here's where we're going. We would run to Jesus. Well, did you know that spiritually speaking, he is here. And he's with you all the time. If you know him, he lives inside of you. So my question to myself and to you this morning is, If Jesus doesn't have my full attention because he's that, what does have my full attention? Because it's not as good as that. It's like Stephen Curtis Chapman said in one of his songs, it's playing Game Boy while standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. You know what I mean? Like I'm looking down at my little thing while Jesus is standing in the presence where we are. So that's just the first little tidbit of a starting point for us to realize today. When they saw Jesus, they ran to him because they were filled with wonder and awe. Second thing here is that Jesus stepped right into their problem. And he wants to do the same thing for you and I. He wants to step in and he does step right into our problems. The, the great thing about Jesus is that we say that Jesus is the answer. That's even a song, you know, Jesus is the answer for the world today. But it's true because Jesus really is the answer to every problem. Math problems have answers, and Jesus is the answer for every problem that you and I could ever face. He cares, and one thing that struck me about this was that he cares even though he was just transfigured. I'm using that as a verb, but do you know what I'm saying? Here's the point. Jesus was just in the presence of God, and God revealed to the three that were there with Elijah and Elisha that he is the Son of God. He's totally transfigured, and Jesus could walk right back down into the earth and go, what, this is, what, I don't have time for this. But man, it's the opposite. He cares completely. So he came to this and stepped right into their problem. Right from the Mount of Tribulation, he says, hey, what are you arguing with them about? Does Jesus know what's getting ready to happen? Yes. So he is foreshadowing what he is getting ready to do. When Jesus fed the 5,000, did you know he turned to the disciples and said, hey, what should we do? 
he's foreshadowing. He knows what he's going to do, but he's foreshadowing for them. Hey, watch, watch what I'm getting ready to do is kind of really what he's saying. So Jesus stepped right into their problem and he does the same for us. The third thing here that struck me about this passage is further down right here in verses 20 to 24. Look what happens here. It says, so they brought him when the spirit saw Jesus it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? So picture this scene when they brought the boy to Jesus, and it says that when the spirit saw Jesus, it began to convulse and foam at the mouth and lay on the ground and roll around and became rigid on the ground. So he's obviously in tremendous, this is a dire situation. Do you know what I'm saying? And Jesus turns to the father and says, how long has he been like this? So the third point here is that Jesus is not in a hurry. Now, let me ask you a question here. Did Jesus need to know the answer to that question to do what he was going to do? Nope. So the only reason he asked that question was for the father. He turns to the father and in a moment of great compassion says to him, how long has he been like this? Jesus knows how long he's been like this. And apparently he's been like this since childhood. So it's probably when he was really, really little. And now he's obviously older and Jesus is showing tremendous compassion because we have to remember something about Jesus. That is that Jesus is all knowing he's all powerful and he's everywhere present And when he says to the father, how long has he been like this? He's really just showing compassion. I thought about an experience that I had when I went to the doctor and that, and I was a little bit nervous about the situation and what's going on. And I'm thinking to myself, all the different things that the online said and all of that or whatever. And like, uh, but when you go to the doctor and the doctor sits down and then patiently, the doctor looked at you and says, um, So tell me, how long have you been experiencing this? And then you begin to think to yourself, okay, let me ask a question. If if he's not like rushing me out in an ambulance and flying me to downtown or something like that, then I'm probably going to be okay. So I'm going to follow the lead of the doctor. I'm going to follow his cues. And if he's really nervous and upset and critical and he's calling everybody else in the room, then I might have something to be concerned about. But uh, if he's calm and reassuring and, and, and doing what Jesus does here, then that's how we are too as people. So he is literally demonstrating right here that he is the great physician. And he does that in all of our problems, in all of our circumstances. He is not in a hurry because he already knows the outcome. He knows what's going to happen. So in our lives as human beings, since we don't know, that's why the Bible says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Jesus is that ultimately. But here, ladies and gentlemen, is where things get really interesting in our story. This is where we discover that this entire passage, this entire story that we are reading here in the book of Mark is showing us that it is really all about faith. That's what this is boiling down to. 
We've seen a few things about how we can apply different things to our lives, but ultimately this entire passage is about faith. Verse 23 says this. Uh, Let me go back to 22. Uh, It is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And then the man says this, the father, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Interestingly, in the Greek right there, that word for help is the same one that you would call out if you were drowning. You'd say, help, meaning someone help right now. That's the Greek word for that version of help. We see a different version in a minute. But that's what this father is saying. He's saying, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Something to point out here, too, is that he had already been to the disciples, and the disciples could not help him. So his faith is probably a little bit shaken at this point because up until today, no one has been able to help his son. His hope put in the disciples, who we'll see later, had been given authority to do this, couldn't help. And now Jesus comes into the scene. And so he is looking at Jesus and saying, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And then I love what Jesus says here. He says, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Let's look back at what Jesus said to the disciples. He said to them, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? That's pretty, like, short. I don't know how to say it. It's, like, pretty tense. It's kind of pointed right at him going, how long are we going to go through this? If you, if you, like, just read your Bible and you'll see the little cross-reference verses, you know, there are so many times if you look at them and look those verses up where Jesus says things like that, where he's literally, and I don't understand this because I don't, you know, we don't understand fully, but to me, reading it, and because I'm placing kind of my emotions in that scene, it appears that Jesus is really frustrated. And I don't know how Jesus is frustrated or not frustrated and how that's not sin, or you know, because it's not sin for him. But it seems like he's really frustrated with the people going, how long are we going to have to deal with it? How long am I going to be with you because of your unbelief? Contrast that with what he says to the Father When he literally looks at the father and says what the father just said to him, he says, if if you can, look at this. In the original Greek text, what Jesus does here is he is using what they would understand to be, and we do too in English, but it it doesn't come through in this text how they translate it. But it's really a a mnemonic device that puts the father... And what he said back onto him. So in today's English language, it might be something like this. And as to your statement, if you can, let me reassure you, all things are possible to the one who believes. The disciples should have known better because they had been with Jesus all these years. They should have known better. But this father who was at the, his wit's end, and Jesus really is his last resort, looks at Jesus and says, and if you can, will you help and heal our son? 
And Jesus, with a twinkle in his eye, really, looks at him and says, if you can, basically saying, I can. Can you believe? He puts it right back onto the Father. So Jesus is really telling us that it is definitely not about what he can do. It's a matter of our faith in him to do it. Do you understand that? Jesus is looking at the man saying, oh, I can heal your son. There's no question about that. The only question here is, do you believe? Do you believe that I can? To the disciples who tried to cast out the demon but just couldn't quite do it, Jesus says, oh, you unbelieving generation, how long will I have to be with you in order for you to understand fully what it means to fully believe? And to this father who's new to this whole thing, he looks at him with that twinkle in his eye and says, if I can, oh, I can. Can you? Is basically what he's saying. Now, when we think about a roller coaster, I don't ride many really huge ones anymore because it just doesn't work. But I used to ride everything that moved. I would jump right on it, jump right on it, jump right on it. But I don't do that quite as much now. Like at Carowinds, if I ever go with the kids, I don't ride the Fury. Now, I look at the Fury and think to myself, man, that's quite a big feat of engineering, and I believe that it will work. In fact, I've watched it work a thousand times as I've been at Carowinds. It works. I've seen it work. I I know it'll work. But the crisis of faith comes when I look at it and say, well, I know it'll work, but I'm just not going to get on it. Same thing is true in business, maybe, when someone says, hey, you need to put your money where your mouth is. It's like, I believe this is a good investment. I really believe that the business you're starting is going to work. I really trust that everything's going to go well for you. So then will you give me money? Actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I watched Shark Tank the other night, and Mark Cuban was talking to a guy, and the guy kept throwing out kind of big names that he was getting advice from and things like that. And Mark kind of looked at him the whole time with the kind of a little – little snide, little smile. And finally he goes, can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah. And he goes, have any of those guys invested with you yet? No. Oh, okay. So I get you. I get you. I hear what you're saying. See what I mean? The difference between stepping in and actually doing it versus thinking that someone can is the crisis of faith that we have in this passage for the father and for, we're going to see in a little bit, the disciples. There's a big difference between can do it, I believe God can do it, versus I believe that God will do it. That's a huge difference in the crisis of faith. It's these types of passages, I wrote this when I was taking notes, it's these types of passages that cause a crisis of belief in me. Here we have Jesus himself saying something so simple yet so profound and powerful. The very son of God who took on flesh for this very purpose to convey convey this very thing says that everything is possible for one who believes. And the question I have for myself and you is, do I believe this? Do you believe this? And I wrote in my notes, yes or no. Because it doesn't do us any good to say, well, I believe, I do believe it, but here's the thing. That's not belief. That's talking about the investment, but I'm not giving you my money. So do I believe it? Second thing is, do I live it? Because I might even say, yes, I believe it. Oh, I believe it. Oh, I don't, Tim, I, I definitely believe it. But do I live it? When the rubber meets the road, do I live it? 
Yes or no? It's a yes or no question. And then the, the question that probably follows that one is, why not? Because all, maybe more often than not, our answer to both of those questions is, no, I, I don't. So that begs the question, why not? Which leads to this next point. Sometimes Jesus grieves our lack of faith. Did you know that in the original languages, when you look at the, what he said to the disciples in this passage, and there are countless other examples. I didn't have time to go through them all, but it's kind of amazing when I read them in order. I was like, wow, boy, Jesus was really affected by this. It really grieved him that there was so much unbelief, and yet he, he did miracle after miracle, and it's still so much unbelief. And the same is true in our world that we live in today. And I know for a fact, because I know me, that there are times that Jesus grieves my lack of faith. Verse 19, when he was upset with the disciples, versus verse 24, when he says to the man, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Here's what I think maybe the father was going through in those moments. The difference between Jesus can heal my son, but will he heal him today? Because I'm desperate. I don't want to leave this situation and be disappointed one more time that this thing is not resolved. Have you ever been in that situation where you want to believe, but honestly, deep down you're thinking, but I don't want to be let down again. I don't want to have to walk away from this and, and have to deal with me now wondering, does God care? Is it my lack of faith? You kind of set yourself up for that. And that's kind of where this father is. But humbly, vulnerably, with tremendous humility and um, just brokenness, the father says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Remember a moment ago we talked about the definition of help in the first passage? That's a cry for help, like, help me now, I'm drowning. Like, run to me. This version of help is a continuous help but continually help my unbelief because it's there. And that's how probably you and I feel. The definition of believe in the original language here is to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance, to believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to trust. It was a complete trust. The father's faith was already shaken. No one could heal his son up till now. And Jesus really was his last hope. But his humility, honesty, transparency, and vulnerability, really, what's the Bible say? That God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this broken man before him says, I believe, but Jesus, if I'm really being honest, you got to help my unbelief. And Jesus steps in and says, boom, all things are possible for those who believe. Watch. And then he does the miracle. And then the sixth thing I can really pick up from this passage today is that life really does boil down to faith. What is my view of God? Is God big enough to handle everything or does he need my help? Is my God able 
Verse 29, this kind can only come out by prayer is what he told the disciples. Listen to what we see from the disciples here when they go to him privately and say, um, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. That, that gives us a picture of what Jesus is talking about, but it doesn't give us the full picture. If we read this same account in Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 through 21, here's what it says there. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What, what is Jesus saying when he's talking about the mustard seed kind of faith? He's really saying that, hey, guys, if you just even have faith the size of a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved. Guys, I know I was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you were left here alone by yourselves. And by the way, the Holy Spirit had not come yet. So they really were, in essence, left kind of by themselves. But they did have the authority, we find out in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus gave them authority to go out and cast out demons. And then in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, we learned that they had already gone out and cast out demons. So here we have a situation where their lack of faith in God was a problem for them casting out demons. That was the problem. The second thing we see about the disciples is maybe, this reads into it a little bit, but it's probably true that since they had already cast out demons, they thought, well, that was pretty cool, and they've done miracles, and that's pretty cool, and just maybe they were thinking a little too highly of their own ability and forgetting the God part of it and leaving him out, and so their lack of faith also translated into having too much faith in themselves because they had been given the authority to do it and had already done it. And then here is something that is literally like, wow. This is proof positive that it literally was the lack of faith that caused the demons to not come out of the boy. And that is this. The proof of it was the demons themselves. Listen to this. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says... Spirits of such malignity and power are quick to recognize and discern the lack of power and authority and will yield to no other name but the name of Jesus. So the very fact that the demons did not come out of the boy proved the lack of faith in the disciples who had been given authority by Jesus Christ himself to go and cast out demons. And they'd already done it before. So I thought about that and thought, wow, it, it's interesting, but the demons were a great litmus test for their faith. Because they didn't have faith, the demons quickly said, what name do you come in? Peter and Paul, remember that? He's like, 
Peter and Paul we know, but who are you? Do you remember that? The demon said that to a guy trying to cast out demons in another passage. I didn't even think I was going to say that because I, I forgot to look it up. But that's incredible. The demons were like, hey, Peter and Paul we've heard of, but who are you? We're not coming out. You can't, ru- can't ru- rule me around. So they recognize the power and authority from where this comes. And so the demons are a great litmus test for that. But guess what else is a great litmus test for our faith? Problems. Our situations. Our crises of faith do that very same thing. They weed out, are we walking by faith and not by sight? Or are we walking by sight alone? I can check my emotions and heart rate and know beyond a shadow of a doubt if I'm walking in Tim Helms's faith or if I'm walking in the faith of Jesus. There's a huge difference. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this passage right here brings that to full light. But it doesn't just happen to people who are demon-possessed. The Bible says that there's a roaring lion prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. And if you and I think that we can walk out into this world and do spiritual battle in our own strength without walking in faith, we're going to be very, very defeated. So what's it going to be? That's our question. What's it going to be? About 12 years after he graduated from Princeton, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was probably one of the, he was, he was, he was the pioneer of all things uh, Christendom for publishing and media, basically. He was the first theologian, pastor type person who thought, man, I think we can get the message out further if we utilize the tools of the, that the world is using for mass media and publication. So he started magazines and started writing books and started utilizing all of these different types of things. So he was invited back to preach in chapel at Princeton. And when he arrived, he noticed his old Hebrew professor Dr. Robert Wilson had taken a place near the front to hear him. And when the service was over, his old Hebrew professor came up to Barnhouse and said, I just want you to know, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once, but I'm glad that I came today and discovered that you are a big godder. When my boys come back to preach, I always come just once to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse asked his professor to explain. And he said, well, you see, some people have a little god. And they are always in trouble with him. He can't do miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of scriptures and their preservation and transformation to us. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. But then there are those who have a great big God, and he speaks, and it is done. He commands. 
stands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. And you, sir, have a great big God and he will bless your ministry. And he sure did bless that man's ministry. Charles Spurgeon once said this, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but a great faith will bring heaven to your soul. When I was at Liberty, Dr. Falwell used to always say this, you know what? It's time we stop telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. That's faith. That's walking by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And that's our dilemma as a human being. It's why Jesus came. How do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. By reading his word and gaining through the power of the Holy Spirit, supernatural faith to be able to walk in the world in which we live to do the things that God has called us to do. So the choice, I don't know how this is, but the choice, as Jesus depicts in this story today, lies with you and I. Because he can do it. Now, that's not the question. The question is, are you and I going to believe, fully believe, that he can? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today, and Lord, we we resonate with this father when he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And Lord, I know that each of us have probably um, been through and we can think of right now circumstances that we know exactly what he was feeling in those moments. And we think to ourselves, well, I know God can do it, but I I just, uh, I don't know if he will do it. I want to believe he will, but I just struggle with that. And So, Lord, today I pray that you would fill us with the faith to believe fully in what you want us to either do or or what circumstance needs to be overcome or a sickness or whatever it is, Lord, financial or in relationships or primarily, though, Lord, it's just in our relationship with you in walking by faith and not by sight and not getting our eyes onto things and circumstances and people around us, but Father, keeping our eyes planted securely on you and being able to walk by faith. So Lord, I just pray that you would encourage each of us in our time, um, really in those crises of faith that we experience in our daily lives, that you would move and work powerfully and that we would have the faith to walk the way you want us to do it. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.